So we've been singing about the power in the name of Jesus, and Steve mentioned a litany of things that the name of Jesus is more powerful than, and we speak the name of Jesus into those things, and they must respond. And one thing that the name of Jesus is much more powerful than is sin. The name of Jesus, the power in the name of Jesus overcomes sin. Let me just begin by an introduction, brief review. Last week, Paul was on trial. It seems like forever now. The trial was abruptly adjourned by the governor, Felix. However, the passage ended with Paul being incarcerated in custody at the governor's palace for two years. And then there was a changing of the guard. Last week's title was Favor in the Midst of Trouble. We spoke how much favor Paul had during his two-year incarceration. He had great freedom, even though he was in custody by the Romans. He had great freedom, possibly even the freedom to come and go as he pleased, and definitely the freedom for unlimited visitation. And if any of you have ever been incarcerated or in prison, that's a huge privilege to have any kind of visitation, let alone unlimited visitation. Great favor in the midst of great trouble. We drew a general principle that we can apply to our lives today. The promise of God to his people is favor in the midst of trouble. Not trouble free. Sometimes we think his promise is trouble free. In this world you will have trouble. The promise is great favor in the midst of trouble. And this promise is for those of God's people who are walking in relationship with him. Not just professing believers, professing to be Christians. This promise is for those who are walking in relationship with him. God's people who are living first for the kingdom of God. Kingdom workers, seek ye first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added unto you. To those folks, God promises great favor even in the midst of great trouble despite what may come, despite what may be coming on America in these days ahead, and we just don't know, God is going to bless his people. We have the promise. God is going to bless his people. But let me be quick to say, the intention of God blessing his people is for what reason? That we'll bless others. Not to hoard it and get fat off of it. That's why I could never be a survivalist and lay up all kinds of, mu- of supplies and munitions and all of that in case it got bad. Because the call is to help others anyhow. We just have to give it away. We've got to help those who need help. We can't keep all that to ourselves. God is going to bless his people in the days ahead, no matter how bad things get. But always keep in mind, it's so we'll bless others. And through us blessing others, what? He's, they're drawn to him through us. Today, Acts chapter 25, just five verses, one through five. And Jim, where's Jim? Jim, if you'll come to the mic, rest of us will stand. Jim's going to read for us these five verses from Acts.
three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. They asked Festus as a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. But Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea and he himself would be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority can return with me. If Paul has done anything wrong, you can make your accusations. Thank you, Jim. May be seated. Title of this message is Sin Dies Hard. It is a message about sin. It's not the most pleasant topic to preach about or to hear about. Sin dies hard. But first we'll exegete the passage. Three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. They asked Festus as a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. Sound familiar? Yeah, sound familiar? Some things change, some things do not change. Felix is out, Festus is in, the new governor, that changed. The Jews still want to kill Paul and are still up to their old tricks and treachery That did not change. Now, Jerusalem is in Festus' gubernatorial jurisdiction. So three days after his inauguration, Festus travels to Jerusalem. He wanted to connect with the leadership there. He wanted to build some relationships with the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem since they were under his governorship. That's what he wanted to do. Guess what's on their minds? The case against Paul. New governor, doesn't matter. Only they're not looking for a fair trial as they, as they appear to be. They're again conniving to get Festus to bring Paul to Jerusalem. Then they're going to ambush and kill him along the way. And I'm like, come on. It's been two years. Two full years since the trial that we... Talked about a few weeks ago. Surely their anger, their malice, their hatred has subsided by now, right? Nope. It has not. Let's finish out the narrative. Then I want to come back to this point to to make application. And just heads up, as I already said, today is not the most pleasant of topics. We need to learn something about sin. We need to do some teaching on sin. God wants us to understand some things about sin. Not the most pleasant pleasant topic, not the most favorite topic for people to preach on or to hear. Well, the next passage, finishing out the exegesis, Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea and he himself would be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority can return with me. And if Paul has done anything wrong, you can make your accusations then. Festus was no dummy. He'd been around the block a few times, as we say. 
This was not Festus' first rodeo, so to speak. He was too shrewd to fall for the Jews' connivory and their treachery. He knew they were going to try and kill Paul. He knew they were going to ambush him along the way, or at least something like that. So he turned the tables on them. And he told them, listen, if you want to try Paul again, have Paul on trial again, then you come to Caesarea with me and we'll reopen the trial if you want. But he was not going to bring Paul to them. Good job, Festus. Nicely done. So, that completes the exegesis of those five verses, the text. Now on to the application. And I want to go back to this question. How can these Jews still be so steeped in hatred, in malice, in anger, and and all the rest of that stuff? How could they possibly have harbored this level of sin for this amount of time? It's been two full years. In order to answer that question, we need to understand something about sin. Remember the title, Sin Dies Hard? Sin does not die. Sin does not go away easily. Sin does not go away on its own. Sin must be driven out. There's power in the name of Jesus. Sin must be driven out. Once sin gets in a life, left unchecked, it becomes entrenched in that life. And the longer it is allowed to exist there, the more it gets entrenched there. It is like a parasite. Sin is like a parasite that strengthens its hold on its host. You've heard the adage, give the devil an inch, he'll take a yard. Give sin an inch in your life, it will take a foot, it will take a yard, it will take your life. How about this for an illustration? Genesis 6. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Boy, that... That's hard to actually grasp, but that's what it says. Every thought or imagine, everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them, and he put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race that I have created from the face of the earth. The extent of sin in the human race and what sin will do, left unchecked. Now, I want to point this out first and foremost. Many think of God as this stoic figure who lives and loves to judge and punish sin. Don't miss that verse, that tender verse, in the midst of this tough passage. It broke his heart. It broke God's heart to see what sin did to his creation. I hate sin. And I hate sickness. They're bed partners, you know. There was no sickness before sin. Sickness came into the human race 
with sin. I hate both of those things. God hates both of those things. And one of the reasons I hate them is because sin and sickness make a mockery of God's creation. When God created man and woman, male and female, when he created the human race and male and female, he created them and he looked and he said, it's beautiful. It's good, meaning it's as good as it can get. That was before sin. And then the sickness that came in with sin and everything that came in with sin and sickness that we see in the human race today, making a mockery of God's beautiful creation of mankind. That's why I hate sin and I hate sickness. And there's power in the name of Jesus against both of those things. Don't miss this tender verse in the midst of this toxic passage. It broke God's heart to have to judge the sin of the human race. Sin in a life, in your life, right now. Sin in your life is breaking God's heart. He's not mad. He's not angry. But he is righteous. Sin does not die hard. Sin does not give up easily. Sin is a stubborn thing. Sin will fight to the end. One evidence of how powerfully sin got entrenched in the human race is the effort that it took to deal with it. The effort that it took to remedy the situation. No longer talking about the flood. Life started over. You know the story. Noah and his sons. And here we are today. But one evidence of how powerful sin is in the human race is the effort that it took to remedy it and to deal with it. 1 John 3.8. When people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God, Jesus, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to earth specifically to destroy the work of the devil. In essence, the work of the devil, referred to here, was to keep the human race captive and in bondage to sin. Sin separated man from God. That gave the devil the upper hand. And now his number one aim and primary, primary goal was to keep the human race separated from God through sin. Following this? How powerful was sin entrenched in the human race? To overcome it, it cost God his only son. It cost God's only son his life. It was no easy task providing for the rescue of the human race from sin. It was no easy task to set the human race free from the grasp of sin once it got entrenched in, in Genesis chapter 3. It was no easy task to deliver the human race from the bondage of sin. We don't take this lightly, do we? Do we? If we really understand the power of sin and the cost of our freedom from sin, the cost that it, what it costs to purchase our freedom from sin, we would not be taking sin lightly 
added to the fact it's breaking God's heart when we sin. If we truly understood this, we probably would not sin quite so easily. We would probably not be so cavalier about sin. Listen to me. Try and get a picture of what I'm about to say. Tremendous power to the extent that we cannot even imagine was being exerted in the universe on that day. What day? On Calvary's Hill. The day Jesus died and was crucified. The forces of God and good battled the forces of the devil and evil for control of the human race that day. And at issue, the stake was sin and the human race. It took the horrible, unspeakable crucifixion of an innocent man, Jesus, the most powerful human who ever lived, to break the hold on sin, to break the hold of sin on the human race, on you and me. The battle raged. It was not staged. This was a very real battle, and it could have been lost. Yeah, but Jesus was God, wasn't he? Yes, but he didn't battle this as God. He battled this as a man under the power of the Holy Spirit. That battle could have been lost that day. All Jesus had to do was say, I've had enough, Father. Send your angels and we'll stop this. If you can get a grasp of what must have been going on in the spiritual realm that day when Jesus was about to be crucified. The eternal destiny of the human race hung in the balance for those few hours, those three hours. But in the end, Jesus won. And he won convincingly. And that's where we're going to go from here today. Satan and sin were defeated. Freedom from captivity to sin was gained for the human race. For all those who will believe it and receive it, it's not automatic. This is what Jesus referred to when he said on the cross, it is finished. It wasn't his life and it wasn't the suffering. What was finished was the redemption of man from the bondage to sin. The work that he had come to do to set the human race free was accomplished. It is finished. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. The Son of God did indeed destroy the works of the devil, and he did indeed set the captives free, and he did indeed rescue the lost. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, said Jesus. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. Jesus is the victor. Sin is defeated. How can you just sit there and look at me? Did you hear what I just said? I don't think we grasp the seriousness of sin. I don't think we grasp what sin has done to the human race, what it has done to us. 
Jesus is the victor. Sin is defeated. Yet, with all that being said, and all that is true, sin in a life still dies hard. It's defeated, but it dies hard. It does not give up easily. Sin is a stubborn thing. God wants to teach us something about sin today. We need to take a deeper look at the nature of sin. We need to fully understand by the time we leave here the nature of this enemy, sin. It is the nature of sin to control with intent to destroy. Although we like to play around with sin, sin does not play around. Sin has one ultimate goal. It's to destroy, it's to gain control and destroy. Think about the story of Cain. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it. You must master it. Sin is never satisfied until it destroys its victim. Here the victim is Cain, and you know the story of Cain. Cain did not listen to the Lord's admonishment. He killed his brother Abel, and you know the rest of the story. It's not good. In our text today, it's the men who after two years were still plotting to assassinate Paul. They were completely controlled by their sin, and it was destroying their lives and looking to destroy others' lives. They had gone from religious radicals to full-blown terrorists. Left unchecked, sin will always, always, always end in destruction. That's the nature of sin. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death, destruction. Left unchecked, sin will destroy you. Do not toy with sin. This is not a game. Sin's master is Satan. Satan plays for keeps. We must not allow them to master us. There's power in the name of Jesus. Okay, enough of the hard teaching. I want to close. I want to close by focusing on how to overcome sin and how not to allow it to control us or destroy us. As we mentioned, God's part. Jesus already took care of the sin issue through his atonement on the cross. Jesus made it possible for us, his followers, to be free from the control of sin. So what's our part? Is it just automatic? We don't have to do anything? No, we always have a part. There's always God's part and man's part. Are you interested to know how we can break the control and be free from sin? Anybody in here actually interested in that? Do you care enough to, be, to know that? Okay. We're only going to scratch the surface. 
We could go so deep into this matter, but we're only going to scratch the surface, surface on this issue today. But it's going to be a good foundational teaching for us. It's going to give us some good foundational information. Some of you may know this. Some of you may not already know this. The first step, I'm sure you already know. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This first step you should know. Confess our sins. One reason we are to confess our sins is because of this on the screen. It's not just because God wants us to admit that we're guilty. He gets some kind of ego trip by us groveling and saying we did this. There's a reason he tells us to confess our sins. Confession breaks the power of sin. Confession breaks the power of sin. Confession here means just to admit or to acknowledge. See, sin cannot control you when you can honestly admit and acknowledge your sin to the Lord. It breaks the power of it. He then forgives and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, from all wickedness, from the power and the control of that sin. Left unconfessed, Confession breaks the power of sin. The person who cannot confess their sin will be under the control of their sin. The person who cannot admit their sin, acknowledge their sin to the Lord, will be under the control of their sin. And sin will continue to get more and more entrenched in their lives until sin will destroy that life. May take that life physically, may just destroy that life so it's never what it should have been, could have been in God. In all three of our illustrations, where I'm, it looks like I must have missed one, because I wanted to point out, if you've been in the Bible read, and you've been reading about Saul, how did Saul go from God's anointed king to Satan's pawn? How did he go from such a good beginning to such a horrible ending? Sin got entrenched in his life, and he would not admit it, and he would not acknowledge it, and eventually it destroyed him. So in all three of our illustrations, now that I remember to bring that out, the folks of Noah's day, the flood, King Saul in the Bible read, 1 Samuel, and the men in our text today that are after Paul, there's no confession, there's no re repentance, <coughs> excuse me, there's no remorse for sin. Therefore, sin gained control, and sin intends to destroy. Next step. That's step one. Confess our sins. Here's step two. Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. Step two. After confession, after admitting and acknowledging honestly our sin to the Lord then we need to renounce the sin. We need to renounce all the effects of the sin. Sin comes with a, a whole bunch of baggage. You don't just sin and move on. Sin brings a lot of baggage. Sin's planning on staying. Sin's planning on moving in. And it brings its baggage and it brings its stuff with it. So what actually does it mean to renounce? It, it can get a little confusing. Try and stay with me. Renounce means to reject, it means to refuse, it means to not allow, to forbid. The thought is this, 
Once sin is confessed, through our determined effort now, we reject, we forbid, we refuse, we do not allow the effects of that sin to control us. It's an act of our will to renounce it. We confessed it, God forgave us, God cleansed us, now our part. We reject it, we forbid it, we'll have nothing to do with it. I will have none of that. The examples are many. Here's one. Sin often brings with it shame and guilt. Satan is diabolical. Satan will whisper to you relentlessly to do something. And then when you finally, saying everything's okay, you know how he does, and then you finally do it and then he changes his tone. How can you call yourself a Christian? How are you ever going to face God? How can you go to church now? So once we give in and sin, now we've got to deal with all the baggage that comes with it, one of which is the shame and the guilt and the condemnation. We refuse to own that. Once we sin, I mean, once we've confessed our sin, once we've received forgiveness and cleansing, we refuse to own the guilt and the shame. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You refuse it. That's an act on your part because Satan will bombard your mind and you can, you can give in to those thoughts. Or you can say, no, wait a minute. I refuse that. I refuse that. That's renouncing. So here's a sum of the first two points. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Third step. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You've confessed your sin. You've been forgiven and cleansed. You now have renounced the sin and all of its effects. You forbid it to any longer affect your life. This stuff comes in really, this stuff is very important in lives that are being damaged by past sin. What somebody did to you or what you did to yourself and it got in there and it's now controlling your behavior. And you might not even realize it is. That's where this confession of it and then renouncing it is huge in setting you free from it. Step three is to declare declare then the truth of Scripture over or into, against, if you will, whatever the sin issue is and it affects you. For, For one issue, I'm going to show you one more, but for one is, so you sin, now you realize it, now you confessed it, and now you're feeling the guilt and shame. You have to refuse that guilt and shame, and you need to declare the scripture that goes against that. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because you can't counter Satan's thoughts just by your, well, my opinion is or I think. You counter Satan's thoughts by the word, the truth. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Interesting, when Jesus was so tempted by the devil for 40 days, not three times in 40 days, for 40 days in the desert, He only responded to him in one way every time. It is written. He didn't say, well, you know, Satan, I think, or you know, I believe. It is written. It is written. It is written. And Satan fled. So once you confess your sin and you're refusing and renouncing all the effects of it, you need to start declaring the truth that counters that. Here's a a for instance too. Ephesians 4.26. Don't sin by letting anger control you. 
Don't let the sun go down while you are angry. If you have an anger problem, and if you have a tendency to sin by getting angry, confess that to the Lord. Renounce the effects that that anger has had on you and the effects of what it has done in your life, where you've allowed it to come in, if you know. Then declare this this truth aloud. I don't have to let anger control me. I will not go to bed angry. I said we could go so much deeper. We have a course in our church. It's called Steps to Freedom in Christ. It really dives in depth to these three steps that I'm telling you about. If you're interested, let me know. Also, you want to declare that truth verbally. The, The common thought is Satan can insert thoughts into our minds, but Satan cannot hear what we think. So if we want to make sure we're declaring truth, we want to do that out loud. So three biblical steps God has given us for breaking the control and the destructive power in our lives. Confession, renounce, declare. Confess the sin, renounce its effects, declare truth. Here's a closing verse. Now you are free from the slavery to sin. Now you are free. You are free from the slavery to sin. You do not have to sin. These things I have written unto you that you might not sin. But if you do sin, God gave us three steps to make sure it doesn't get control and destroy us. You with me on all this? So you are free from slavery to sin. You have become slaves to righteous living. You were slaves to sin. Now you are free from the power of sin. And you have become slaves to God. Now do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. Because of Jesus, sin no longer has control over us unless we give it control. It's not automatic. If we toy around with and play with sin, yeah. Because of Jesus, sin no longer has control over us unless we give it control. But even if we do give it control, provision has been made. It's on us, but provision has been made. Confess, renounce, declare. We stand with me? Brandon, if you'll come forward. Sonny, if you'll bring the band up. Wait till everybody's kind of settled down. Don't try and speak over the the uproar. and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the importance of your word in um, combating lies of the enemy and in your Holy Spirit stirring up that word that's within us. Um, 
to prompt us to say things and speak things to, to people as you will it, Lord. Uh, Father, I just ask that you would give us knowledge and understanding from your word, especially as we go through the Bible read. Um, you would help us just to absorb your word, have it to become part of us, that it's stored within our hearts and that wells up into actions based on your word, Lord. So we thank you so much and ask you to bless the rest of this worship in Jesus' name. Amen.